Dear listeners, welcome. I am Esma Gillis, host of the Hairdressing Masterminds podcast. We feature inspiring people with extraordinary skills who are creative and visionary and bring value on every level of our lives. I present you Harley Lovegrove, world-renowned business coach and author of four books, The Change Manager's Handbook, Transition, Inspirational Leadership, Making a Difference. He's also chairman of the Bayard Partnership and founder of the Young Belgian Talent Classical Music Competition. Dear Harley, welcome on the podcast. Amazing having you here. Thank you, Ismael. Thank you. It's very kind, very nice to be here. So, Harley, tell us a bit about yourself. What do you do and where do you live? Well, I now live in Belgium, uh, but I was brought up in southeast London. And uh, my parents were artists and uh, my father was an architect. And I was really into music and I wanted my dream was to be a famous musician when I was a young guy. But uh, now, you know, how, there's an old uh, joke that says, how do you make God laugh? Well, you tell him your plans. And what happens is some things happen in life and you find yourself going in a very different direction. And that, I met my wife in England and uh, we eventually moved to Belgium because that's her home country. Yes. And uh, now I'm Belgian. So I find myself living in Belgium and I'm uh, running uh, companies, uh, as you've mentioned. But I started my first company when I was 21. Okay. Younger, actually. I wanted to see Pink Floyd live at Nebworth. And, uh, that was my favorite rock group at the time. And uh, basically, I, I had no money. So I set up a gardening company with my friend. And we went to all the houses in the neighborhood, which were big gardens and very rich uh, owners. And uh, we knew nothing about gardening, but we uh, did our best and got enough money to get to Nebworth. So that was my first sort of role in entrepreneurialism because of the fact I had a goal. I needed to get a certain amount of money by a given amount of time. And that was the plan that I brought in. But after that, I started setting up my own businesses and running my businesses. Whilst in the beginning, also working for employers. So I started in recruitment. Then I went into marketing and eventually into sales, and then uh, full-time really working on my own company, developing up staff and, and, and that kind of thing. So you were already a, uh, an entrepreneur from a, from, from a young age? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, from as long as I can remember, really, yeah. The combination of art, culture, and, and entrepreneurialism has always been there. Okay. So, um, Arli, what is your take on inspirational leadership like in the near future? Well, I think that people always need uh, someone to inspire them or something. I mean, it starts when we're very, very young. It can be our parents, but more likely it's going to be an uncle or an aunt or a teacher or someone in life inspires us to do something. They believe in us and they encourage us to go beyond our boundaries. And that will never change. I can't see that changing. I see whatever happens in the world, this need to be inspired and to have a purpose and a mission in life is in all of us. And, you know, great leaders are those who are able to have a vision, have a wonderful vision of something to achieve, and then plant seeds in people to say, look, wouldn't it be amazing if we could? And from there, great ideas come. And that doesn't matter whether it's in a charity or whether it's in a business, like, you, like the ones that your, um, your listeners have, 
or whether it's a great big multinational, or even in some kind of religious group. We need a vision, something to believe in, and we need people to help us achieve that. Yes. So um, what, what, I, what, what we face uh, on an everyday basis is, um, of course, when you uh, inspire people or you, li- you, you would bring them like uh, your vision. So um, sometimes you um, face difficulties that it's not always so easy to create change in an organization or in perspectives or even in worldviews if we go very broad. But why is that so difficult? Well, because we're dealing with people. And there's a big dilemma that faces you and um, many, many companies, even uh, your next door neighbors are often likely to be shops or would have been shops. The world is changing now, of course. But if you imagine, I'd like to make a little scenario for you. Imagine that you, uh, it's always been your dream to set up a, a hairdressing salon and to really have a special one and have it in the main part of the high street. And you do that and you and your partner set it up and you get it going and you recruit the people and everything's exciting. And then one day you want to have another one. So you think, okay, that's great. I'm going to make another one just like the one I've got in another town, in the town next door, should we say. Well, when you do that, of course, what is happening is that in the, when you set up the first one, everything was happening for the first time. So you're really excited. You're getting the bank and the money and this and that. And you're recruiting people. And then you're using a lot of visionary language without realizing it. Talking about how wonderful it's going to be. And this is not going to be any salon. It's going to be the best salon in the world. And we're going to have this. We have very great music. And we're going to get cool customers who will love us. And we'll all be heroes. And you have this kind of rock band kind of ethic where everything is possible. But then you, when you open the second one, it's kind of like business. Hmm, this one's going well. Let's open another one. But then immediately your leadership becomes management because in the second one, what you want it to be is exactly the same as your first one. Yes, correct. So what you're doing is you say, to all the staff and everybody in there, great, do it like we do. So when someone comes in, don't say good morning, say hi there, nice to see you. And then you have to train other people to say hi there, nice to see you. And what happens is you get a hi there, nice to see you. Yes. And it doesn't work. And what you're doing is you're moving from leadership into management. You're managing the people to make sure they put the money in the till in the right way, they cut in the right way, they, and then you're running a business. And that passion can go. And it's very, very difficult to have two separate businesses in, in an inspiring way. So large companies have classically done this by basically setting up management structures, management teams. And the bigger they get, often the less inspiring it can become in these large organizations. So they have to build very intricate mechanisms. The other method that the Americans were very fond of was, of course, franchising, where you gave people a brand and a label and you said, look, you can make this your own. But inspirational leadership is about taking people beyond themselves, believing in them, showing them that they can achieve great things. And I really feel that that's an important element because in your business, you have two clients, not one. You have the client that comes through the door who you cut their hair, but you have the client who's also the people cutting hair. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, that's correct. Some countries say they are employees. I still like to see them as clients, especially if they're freelance. So you have to inspire them to want to cut hair in your salon. And just paying them more than anywhere else is not enough. People are not motivated by money. Very, very, very few people are motivated by money. I told you, Esmail, in the beginning, when I first uh, started out, I worked in a in in recruitment agency. Yes. What we learned in the recruitment agency is that very few people leave their jobs for more money. Very, very few. Most okay. of them leave because they've had an argument or upset or they've had a dream that maybe something would be realized that was not realized. And they tend to leave for those reasons. It's very rarely money. So your internal clients, your clients that service your external clients, are your most important. Because they're not motivated and driven and inspired to do great work and to have a great buzz around them, then that will impact your paying clients. So for me, inspirational leadership in the future is going to be much more about Developing those skills, because when you have less and less and less uh, shops in the high street, less and less reasons for people to come to the locations where you are, people, luckily enough for your profession, will still need their haircut, but they will expect more. In the old days, when I was a young lad in southeast London, you went in, you, you paid, a, I think it was two shillings and sixpence, and the guy with a razor just shaved most of, the, most of your hair off. It was done very quickly. And uh, it was all men in there and just hair on the floor. And that was it. In five minutes, it was done. Um, the world has changed. And of course, people want to go there for an experience. You're offering your clients an experience. And in order to do that in, authentic, in an authentic and genuine way, you've got to love your work. You've got to love life. You've got to love yourself. And you've got to really want to have those people around you, your internal clients making this a special experience for everyone. Yeah, that's, that, that's completely true. So because uh, we, we face that every time. So um, when you f- change your vision on inspirational leadership, how is your take on creating systems that are managed by people and create a result? Or are you more fond of... Um, try to inspire the people so they live and accomplish the dream and results? Yeah, you see, now there's this, that's quite a complicated question there, but you've got so many elements. I want to try and break it down. You started about systems and processes and management, you mentioned, and then you talk about inspiring. Now, the problem with being an inspirational leader is a wow person who everybody loves is that that can die relatively quickly. It's difficult to maintain it. On the other hand, what we also know is that people need some kind of discipline. So we we need to get up in the morning, brush our teeth, get washed, go to work, and arrive at an agreed time. Our paying client might be late, but we can't be. And so that discipline is then measured and reflected like a mirror into the business. And what I found is that the best businesses are ones where actually the processes and systems are very clearly defined. So your scissors are always in a certain place, the the towels are in a certain place, the the washing area is always nice and clean. You know, in our salon, we do it like this. In our salon, we like to have it like that. And not, 
I want you to put your towels in that place. I want you. You see, so we are building systems and rules within the team that we all adopt. And so in order to do that, you need to involve your team. You're saying, listen, have you noticed all the towels on the floor? Isn't this a mess at the end of the day? What could we do to make it better? And involve them in the solution because your vision then is a nice clean floor even at the end of the day. So how can we as a team achieve it? And if you as a, a, a leader or a manager say, I want you to do this, this, and this, that might work for some, but not for all. And therefore, you have to understand the different character types of your employees and your freelancers and adapt to them and make sure that you engage with them in the right way. So we have a little bit of leadership, which is Patrick Thomas, the CEO of uh, formerly Biomaterial Science and now Cabestro, is now at Johnson Matthey. Patrick Thomas said in the, in the foreword to my book, Inspirational Leadership, that inspirational leadership is taking people somewhere other than where they're headed. So what we mean by that is we have a group of people and they're doing some stuff. It might be pretty good, but we want them to do it differently. We want to take them in a new direction. We want to expand their, their boundaries. So that then involves change. Yes. So how do we change people to get back to your question is, well, basically, the best way is to first understand that they're going to resist change. We know that if you want to change something, even something small, like changing the drawer where the scissors are kept, people are going to say, oh, no, why has he done that? Oh, he's always interfering. Why can't he leave things alone? Why is it always me that has to go searching around? You know, you're going to have, even for the smallest thing, resistance. This is perfectly normal. It's built into us as human beings. If it wasn't like this, we would all be extinct. Let me give you a little little um, uh, image. If, any, if you have children or any of your people have children, you'll know with young children, they hate new food. They just will not try new food. Great. But there's one environment where they will try new food, when you're not around. Basically, when they're at a children's party and all their friends are eating this jelly or whatever it is, which they don't normally eat at home. And they see other children who look like them or act like them eating it, and they can see they're not dying. So they're thinking, ah, actually, maybe this is okay. So two things are happening here. We have peer pressure from the other children saying, come on, Johnny, this is great. And on the other hand, we happen to think, mm, actually, a someone like me can eat this without becoming ill. I'm not going to die. And where does that come from? Of course, in the past, when we were all living in the nature, when we were hunter-gatherers, babies were crawling around, as you can imagine, in the open air. If they ate and tried new things and ate all the berries in the forest, we would all be extinct. So it's built into us not to be inquisitive, not to change. When we have got used to something, this is the way we like it to be. And it gets worse once we've left school, once we've left college and we got into a, a, a rhythm. Because going to work every day, funnily enough, maybe not for you as male, but for a lot of people, is quite hard. 
you know, you had a row with your boyfriend, with your girlfriend, you've got to get up and the kids, the kids are, are sick and you've got to get them to school and then you've got to get to work. And why are you doing it? Because you need to earn some money. I mean, all of these elements. Yes. It's hard. It's difficult. It's tough. So we like to have things when we get there just how we like them, just what we're used to. Yeah. So the leader who wants to bring about change has to fundamentally understand that there is a resistance change. And in my book called uh, Ma uh, Managing Change, a change manager's handbook, you will see that I actually have a graph about the resistance of change. The first step is denial. So if you say to someone, and it's typically on the news, so you come into to work and you say, have you heard? And they say, no, Jack Smith has died. No. The first reaction is always no. Denial. They will say no, because in their world, Jack Smith was in the salon just the other week. Yeah. And I, I cut his hair. Yeah. So the first one is denial. So our brains are saying the world is with Jack Smith. And now you're saying it's not. But then what tends to happen is after this change, when you're implementing change into the environment, you'll first of all get denial. Oh, no, not again. Why now? And then you'll get anger. It's always me that has to pick it up. And why us? And I don't know. And then after anger, you will basically then have a kind of bargaining session. Where you say, well, well, I will do it if we have this. And why would we do that? And then and they start bargaining with you and trying to discuss with you, trying to get you to change your mind. We like the way things are now. Please don't make us do this. It's going to make things worse. And then once you've gone through this and you say, I am the boss, I am Ismail, I am the boss, you will now do what I say, then they will become depressed. Even to the smallest amount of good, oh, I'm fed up with this, I'm going to look for another job on Monday, and la, 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 la. And maybe when they go home and they talk to their partners or their friends, say, come on, that's not so bad, and come on. You, I thought you liked working there. Well, I do. And, yeah. and then they will gradually come out of their depression and then very gradually, they'll, then they'll become creative. What you'll find coming is, well, Ismail, if you want us to keep the scissors in that drawer, okay, that's fine. But I think what we should also do is change the window display. And they'll start becoming creative and then picking up. And it's very important that you start understanding this cycle when it takes place. Yes. Actually, so you can recognize it. They're not being difficult when they're arguing with you, when they're resisting. They're being normal human beings. Yes. And after their creative phase, you'll finally get to your acceptance. So in the book, you'll see that there's a nice sharp U with this sequence and there's a little story that goes with it to understand exactly how you recognize those symptoms. So managing change and leading change is about what are we going to, where are we going to? So wouldn't it be great if at the end of the day we had nice clean floors and nice clean surfaces all the way around? And we wouldn't have to spend the last hour tidying up. Yeah, that would be great. You're planting a vision in someone's head. And that's it. But how are we going to do it? You could say by doing this, this, and this. But inspirationally, this is, I don't really know. I was hoping that you might have some ideas. So you're involving them in the solution. Even if you've clearly got ideas in your head. I've got some ideas, but I'd be interested to hear from you because you know that is the person that's going to have to change, not you. You're the boss. You want the scissors somewhere else. You want the towels somewhere else. You're going to do it. But you've got to inspire those around you. So by involving them in the thought process, first of all, the vision, then following them through, there's a good chance you'll do that 
without the major elements. You'll still have those little elements, denial, anger, depression, creativity, acceptance. But it'll be so light that it won't really cause a problem. Yeah, so it, it's, it's, it's an important key to involve the people on every aspect. Well, there's a difference. Uh, be careful now. On every aspect, when I say involve the people, you don't have to have a big hippie loving. You are still the boss. You're still responsible. At the end of the day, you've got to make sure you have a profitable business and it's a safe environment for your staff and for your customers. Money and safety. I mean, safety is the first. No one slips on a wet floor. If there's a safety feature, that needs to be dealt with. But the only way to maintain a self-environment, a safe environment, is by having the people involved with you. So, yes, you, you, you need to be the leader. So it's not like you're building a hippie commune. It's just by saying, listen, I've got this vision for the future. I've got this idea. And I, I think, you know, the, for me, the problem today is, as dirty as this, is that, is that. What I would like is to see this, this, and this. How can we do this? And involve them only in the kind of the solution side of it. Yes. You've made the decision that you want it clean and tidy. That's not up to debate. It's how we're going to bring it about. What would we have to change in order to get it like that? And that's the, uh, the core uh, skill of leadership and management. And to get back to your processes side, when you have your systems and your processes, the human being is able to remember them and learn them off by heart. And they're very complicated. Like the words most complicated in the world, I think, is a restaurant. You know, you have 20 different people all coming into a restaurant at the same time, and they all want to eat something completely different with fresh ingredients and this and all different cooking times. I don't know about you, but I find it difficult to prepare one meal with seven mm -hmm. different ingredients. Mm -hmm. because they're all. So you can imagine how complex that is. Mm -hmm. But once we get into a routine, once we have our processes and our systems in place, and once they're working well, and we're working well as a team, that's management. And leadership is when we want to change the way we do things. Okay. So when I understand that process, I can also imagine, because we experience it also, that there will be like little failures along the way. So what, what is your take on, on, on taking those failures and, uh, and correct them to, uh, to build them in, in, in a successful uh, story or a successful uh, application afterwards? Well, that, that's, that's, that's very interesting um, because, you know, there is no success like failure. And as Bob Dylan once wrote, there's no success like failure, but yet again, again the, the failure is no success at all. So because you've failed doesn't mean that that's a success. No, it's a failure. But you cannot achieve success without failing. It's impossible. Yeah. Um, what we, the art in business is to make sure that you can avoid the mistakes that you possibly can and to learn and listen from one another. And this is what's really inspired me this morning to, to spend time with you and your, and your listeners is because if we can learn from one another, if we can see something working well, if we can implement that, it means that our speed and time to get where we want to be is quicker. In America, for example, it's very different in, in, in mainland Europe, but in, in America, for example, it's very unlikely that a, a, an investor will invest in your business if you haven't at least failed in one or two businesses before. Because in those 
failing businesses, you learn far more. I've had a business, you know, that basically failed and it was a bit of a disaster. But during that failure, I learned I was paying my suppliers too much. I was uh, paying them too quickly. I was not managing my cash. I was not efficient enough with my personnel. I hadn't broadened enough my marketing. My, my client base was too narrow. I mean, all of these things I learned the hard way. And if we can learn this without having to fail physically and financially with our businesses, then it's so much the better. But when I was younger, I thought I knew everything. And, you know, everything was straightforward. And whatever my father would say or somebody else would go, oh, wow, what does he know about business? Yeah, the whole world's changed. Dad, get a life. If we are able to learn from those who've been through it, then we can go much further. But failure is a, isn't it, an essential part of success. And admitting your failures and, and explaining and understanding what went wrong and then making a list of what would I do differently. We call this lessons learned. So, yes, we lost a business. Yes, it was a disaster. Everything was wrong. Now I've got to pay the next 10 years paying the bank back. But what did I do wrong? What, if I was going to do it again, what would I do differently? If I was going to talk to Samantha again in that difficult moment, what would I have said differently? How would I have done it differently? And you need to do that and you need to share that with people that you trust. Maybe not in your business, but if you're in a group or, or, or colleagues or, and maybe you have your an association, you can meet up with your colleagues. You say, well, I really screwed up last week. Uh, I did this, this and this and ah, I feel such an idiot. At least by sharing and learning, you can move forward quicker and better. Yeah. So failure is a gift. And if I just on the last minute, a lot of these elements come back into my book, Inspirational Leadership. But when someone's giving you feedback, when a client or a, one of your staff is daring enough to come to say, look, Ismail, may I share something with you? It's, they are really hurting to actually come and do this and to say this is not easy. But actually what they're doing is they're giving you a gift. When they say, you know, I really don't like the way that you talk to that person. I thought that was a little bit, you know, too direct. You know, I prefer it when. Then you can feel angry and mad at the time and you can go home and you can, there's a lovely word in Dutch called relativeren, which means to, mm. to sort of put everything in balance to understand whether that's there or not. Mm. And then the next morning you can come and say, thank you very much for that, Samantha. Whether you agree or not, it doesn't matter, but you've looked at it in balance and you've thanked the person for the feedback. Um, because I think actually, those are the most precious gifts that we ever get in life, our, 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 our um, understanding of failure. Yeah. It, it takes also courage. It takes a lot of courage also. How do you feel um, we could um, bring those insights over to a younger generation? For example, you get younger people coming in, um, our educational system isn't isn't that good enough um, to create people. So when they come on the floor, we like to have to re-educate them. And um, a lot of those uh, uh, values and habits we talk about, mostly what we experience is those young people, it's like they've heard it for the first time when you talk about it. Mm -hmm. 
what could be like uh, an interesting way to involve them and to um, to let them learn about those topics? Well, I I would go back to the time when you were young. I would advise you and your listeners to think about when they were 14, 15, 13, 12, impressionable, and think about, make a list of who at that period in my life did I really listen to. And there might be one teacher out of all the teachers from their school that they thought, oh, Mr. Brown or Mrs. Giggs was great, inspiring. And then there was my first job. There was that manager I had. She was really, she was great. And then to say, well, what was special about them? And normally what you'll find is that they were good listeners. And that they were also inspiring. And they looked to be mature and to have the answers. So when you have young people in, forgive me for being so abrupt, but don't re-educate them. Listen to them. Listen to them talk about their life because what we have with young people is enthusiasm and energy and passion and ideas. And what we do is we give them a broom to sweep the floor. And they have to do that for five years until they've learned to get rid of all these ideas and passion and all these things. And then maybe we'll let them do some haircutting. So what we need to do is to listen to them try and understand what their dreams and their goals are. What do they want to be one day? Would they like to have a salon one day? What, what is their dream? And to try and help them realize that dream. Because if you are able, even in a small way, to help them realize that dream, it can be in their personal life. It can be in business. Maybe their dream is to have a new car or or go on holiday with a boyfriend or girlfriend to go to Mauritius, whatever, if you can help them achieve their dreams, then you're going to be a great boss. You're going to be inspiring. But, and they will, like in the Indian traditional culture where you had gurus and students, and the student would work for the guru all their life in the hope of getting some wisdom. Our Western education is, listen, you come to school and we'll teach you everything and we'll show you everything. But we give them facts and figures and we educate them that in 1872 this happened and in 1942 this happened. Facts and figures and numbers. But what we really want to do when they come to us is listen to what their dreams and what their ambition is and try and help them realize them. Even if they're going to be with your salon for just six months, if they go out having learned something about life, something that they thought was important that they needed to learn that had nothing to do with cutting hair, then they will have happy memories of your place and they'll have happy memories and they'll spread the news about what a great person you are, what a great business you have, because they're also ambassadors. And those young people will be your new clients one day. Or one day they will open the salon in the next village. So young people are really uh, fantastic. I love working with young people because they don't know anything about politics. They don't know the word no. They, they have so much But on the other hand, and when 
they feel that you have some gifts or pearl of wisdom for them, they will do anything for you. They will, they will work hard. If they feel just for one moment you're taking them seriously, you're respecting them as an as a individual, as an adult, young adult, um, I think you'll find that, that they can be really wonderful. Yes, that's true. So if I um, turn the lamp back uh, on, on myself and all my listeners, um, where um, you think today is, um, is there a difficulty for us to be like a good coach in the world today? Where lies that difficulty? Because that's the other side. Well, probably because, you know, also I'm not a very good coach. To know. I'll, be, be, I'll be quite level with you. you, you when you're running a business, you can't be good at everything. You can't be. No, it's impossible. You, you might want to be. So what I, I also try and advise business people, especially entrepreneurs setting up their businesses, is to kind of look at your strengths and think, okay, I've got these. These are my strengths. And, and the best people to tell you what your strengths are are your friends and enemies. I mean, they will tell you what your, your, your strengths are. And then look at your weaknesses and your friends and enemies will also tell you, your real friends will tell you and your enemies will certainly tell you what your weaknesses are. And what I say is you need to get your weaknesses up to a higher level. So if you're going to do, um, Patrick uh, used to use this um, decathlon image in his company to his management team. In the decathlon, you have all the different events, high jump, long jump, running, whatever. And you can't be... To win the gold medal at the Olympics, you don't have to win every single event. You've just got to win more than others and not be so bad in one of them that it completely kills you. So you need to focus on your weaknesses a little and get them up to an acceptable level, even though you're not even going to get a gold, silver or bronze, but you might come just one behind on your weakest one. And if coaching is so, so difficult, why is it difficult? Because you are managing and you're leading at the same time. So people come into, into your salon and say, good morning, Samantha, how are you today? Oh, I'm fine, thanks. You know, and you think, oh, here she goes again. She's got those terrible nails. They're not varnished properly. You know, it looks a bit of a mess. But you're a leader, you're a manager. But for that, you need a coach. And to be able to take her to one side and sit down with a nice cup of coffee and say, Samantha, let me share something with you be the, the nice coach it's difficult because you know things need to be done there's people coming in the phone is ringing you've got texts coming in and so the role of a coach might not be your thing and yet other leaders coaching might be their, their thing as well but if you know nothing about coaching then i would at least recommend that you study on the internet at least some of the principles of coaching understand what is needed and to see if there's one person in your team who has the natural tendency to be a kind of coach character, and see if you can develop that within them, or indeed at least yourself develop that thing, or, or meet someone or try and find a coach in your environment, and when you're having difficulties or whatever, maybe bring your coach in for an afternoon, for an hour, when everything's shut, you say, right, we're going to have a team session today and we're going to go off and do something and we're going to sit with, this, with a coach. And they will know how to motivate and communicate with an individual in your team or with a group of people in your team. Because the coaching that you give that individual will serve them well for the rest of their lives. 
that you may not get all the benefit. They might actually even go somewhere else, but you'll send a better human being out into the world. We all need coaching. The leaders need coaching more than anything because there was nothing, as you said yourself, at school that taught us about leadership or management or processes and systems and coaching. I, I don't ever remember having a lesson at school, maybe it's changed now, on coaching. Oh. And I'm pretty bad at it. And I've had to learn at least some techniques from my colleagues. And it's kind of strange because when you're in the coaching role, you really have to put the coaching hat on and you have to think and act and behave very differently than when you're in your leadership or management role. So Harley, when, when, um, for example, you feel overwhelmed or confused, what are the things um, that you do to get your focus back? When I feel what, sorry? When you feel like overwhelmed or confused. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's a good question. What do you do on a bad, bad day? I mean, I think all of us have something. Yeah, of course. Uh, we do, so. Yeah, yeah. And, and definitely we get overstressed. And I think the secrets of that is also to know the symptoms of when you're getting it because we're not very good at measuring it. Um, what do I do when I've noticed it in myself? It's often a little bit too late. You know, I'm already a bit hyper. Luckily, I have my wife who's a very good measure of it. You know, she can see it straight away that this is getting too much. Yes. Uh, and sometimes it can be a colleague or work person. And uh, what you really need to do, um, and what she will do, is probably bring me a, a cup of coffee or a biscuit or something and completely at a random time. And, and we're just five minutes quiet somewhere, you know, headphones on, listen to a piece of music. And for me, it's music. I, I will just five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, go out of the situation, sit quietly and listen to a piece of music and relax. And again, that lovely Dutch word, relative and put everything back into balance. And, and because that will just calm me down because in our brains, we have the three sections of our brains. And the, the basic section is basically the lizard brain. And mm. if we see a bit of food in front of us, choom, we just eat it. It's our brain just snapping in. And the part of the brain where we really need to use for coaching and, and being kind and thinking and creative, that uses enormous amounts of energy. And that's why if we have processes and systems in place, it's great because we don't have to think about it, we just do it. Um, and that means when we're stressed and whatever, the bit of the brain we really need, the creative thing, right, I've got two angry customers, I've got an upset member of staff, I've got a supplier who once been waiting half an hour. All of these things come together. You know, basically, you need your creative side. And you may just have to take five minutes and listen to a piece of music or do a breathing exercise mini meditation, anything like that. But these are the things that great leaders and great managers learn how to do with um, because they are human and you need to be able to do that. Yeah. So um, to continue on that also because... Oh, also delegation is important. Sorry, mm -hmm. I must just say that, you know, when that situation is happening, you say, look, sorry, Jackie, just, I just need five minutes Can you hold the salon for a, for, for a few, few and five minutes? I'll be back in five minutes. And you go outside into the street and just breathe calm and deep, go for a little walk up and down, 
calm down, work out what are the main problems, what are the things I can deal with. There's no point sweating the stuff you have no control over at this stage and then come back in and say thank you to Jackie for taking over and, and then calmly carrying on with your day. Because when, when we are like, uh, we're, we're, when we are entrepreneurs, we are obliged to uh, work on all those uh, different steps. And um, often what I also experience is we, we, we certainly live uh, sometimes in an environment where to be an entrepreneur is also like a little, there's constantly a little taboo about it. But um, my, uh, my idea and question uh, at the same time for you is, um, what is your perspective um, on being an entrepreneur and bringing value to the world and also contributing as a human being? Because at, at the end, the contribution as a human being with what we do every day is, more, is the most important thing. Yes. Yes. I, I, okay. I, I, I understand. Um, I think, first of all, we're back to the big questions of life now then. What you, what you ask, you're saying is, what is the meaning of life? Why are we here? Well, we need, we're here because we, want, we need to make a difference. We want to make a difference. We want to somehow feel that our lives are justified, that we come to work, we earn money, we do this, we do that, but why? It's that big question. And obviously, if we can improve the lives of us around us, sometimes it can be in the smallest, tiniest little things, just saying thank you to someone just asking a question and of course with your relationship to your clients you have every opportunity to, to, to help them in that situation but also just in the smallest thing from opening a door from someone to, to 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 noticing that they're unhappy for example that gives real value and meaning to your life you know i i often think that that uh, hairstylists and salons offer very similar to sort of care and, and concerns as in the, as you might find in the nursing industry as well. Certain elements come back mm -hmm. or, or certainly in the coaching industry. And so therefore there could be enough meaning in life for that on its own. On the other hand, what I really like to do in any organization is on the one hand, you have the purpose of the business to make people feel good, and look good, maybe for you, for your purpose but underneath if you can match your purpose to uh, a good not-for-profit exercise so it could be for example that one of you has had a, a child that's sick or ill with learning difficulties or maybe you are very concerned about nature or the, or the public park the park down the road or the, the cleanliness of the streets and if you and your team can if you can find a theme that you and your team align to you as a business can link together i i was a, an interim manager at, at uh, levi strauss the jeans people for a while yes. and i was really touched because they had this really strong ethic of community and they spoke about it quite a lot and one day a year or two days or even a week people would go off and they would do things in the community and you could sign up for different things. So, and the one I signed up for was to join a bunch of people from the company I didn't know. And we went to, went to a, a home for the blind 
and we started tidying up the garden because the garden had really become overgrown and a mess and we were building it, wanted to help them build a, a new pool for a new sensory garden, a garden with flowers, with smells and, and textures and whatever. And that was great, you know. I mean, you, so you were working with people from the company on something and it made you feel good and it created a nice atmosphere within the company and it gives you a theme and a story and, and again, something to tell, something to talk about, which isn't just about your, your clients or your personnel, but about things that matter that make a difference. About bringing value. At the end, it's about bringing value. Yes, the problem with the word value is that sometimes people see that in monetary terms. And I know you don't mean it in monetary terms, but people do. You okay. know. But it's sort of like giving, giving you and your team a purpose, something that's bigger than just what you do for a living. Yes. So, um, Arlie, what are your uh, biggest goals, dreams, and aspirations on, on this moment in your life where you're now? Well, I'm in the moment in my life where I, I feel that I've taken on all of the challenges in a commercial way that I've wanted to do. I don't have any big plans to set up another business or to do something else. I have a lot of books on my shelves that still need reading. Um, there's a lot of... And the music charity that you talked about is becoming very important to me. So over the next few years, I want to spend a bit more time on that, finding more sponsors, getting the community bigger and established so that even if I and my business partners aren't around, the charity, the not-for-profit business for young musicians uh, will continue long after I'm gone. And so that's something I'd like to do. But very, very importantly, you mentioned the company name, the Bio Partnership. We're a group practice of uh, professionals. And um, we have a number of them coming through. And I would like to dedicate the next few years into ensuring that when it's my time, when they kick me out because I'm too old and I can't remember things anymore, <laughs> or when, when I feel it's time to step out, when that I can, we can have a very, very smooth transition to the next generation and that they have some inherited and taking over something that has real, real value and uh, is financially very, very sound. It is today, but I like to feel that the transition period over the next few years is very important. So I'm be focusing on transition. Transition is the theme of my life at the moment on the, on the Young Musicians Charity and mostly on, on, on the bio partnership because I have great, great people working with us, great project managers and change managers. And they're people very much like me who, who want to go into a company and the company needs some help just for a short period of time, maybe for six months or a year or two years whilst they're carrying out a project. And they're looking for people with passion and energy and, and creativity to help them get through it. And that's what we do uh, at Bayard, and it's just fabulous being with the people. But we hardly ever work together because we're all working at our clients. So it's that transition I want to, uh, to, to oversee. Okay. So, Arlie, what would you tell if you would have, like, a very young, driven entrepreneur or young, inspirational kid um, coming to you, what would you tell them to, what is your best advice you would give them to go on and start their own journey? Ooh, I think the best advice, the advice I would always give them, well, first of all, I would want to listen to them. 
I would want to get to know them as fast as I could. And I would do that by asking them certain questions. You know, who are the people you look up to in life? Who are your role models? Who, what would you like to be? What do you imagine success might look like in your life? What, you know, if he was sitting in this room a year from now, having this coffee or beer together, and we've had a great year, you've had a really great year, what would you have achieved? And I'll try and get them to use that part of their brain where they visualize their achievements one week, six weeks, six months, a year away. And then when you hear what their achievement is, well, I would really like to be able to play the piano or whatever it is or, or make a million euros. Um, then at least you can say the advice you give them will be relevant to their need. Okay. Because if I just say, hey, son, don't borrow money and don't lend money and trust your friends, I mean, it's, it's, unless it has context, it's meaningless. You know, I mean, really. So I would listen to them, and then I would try and give them the best advice I can, probably based upon my failures. And I would also tell them a story, because I think we, we remember stories long, long after remembering bits of advice. But, you know, the bits of advice that are stuck in my head from my childhood were, my father used to say to me, if I was being a bit miserable, he would say, cheer up or clear off. Okay. Kind of very tough, but he sort of said, you know, get a grip. Yeah. But in business, it's the absolute secret to success is do it now. I really believe just get on with it, get, get it done. You've got this idea, start it, get it done. Because the only thing that matters at the moment, at the end of the day, is the result of getting it done. Yes. If it's a mess, clean it. You know, if, you, if you want to go and do it, just do it. And that's really, really important. Correct. Okay, Harley, I wanted to thank you very, very kindly for this conversation. Um, I want to thank you to bring this value of insights to our listeners also. Thank you very much. It was very nice talking to you. And uh, hopefully we hear and we see each other on another one episode in the future. Thank you so much, Harley. Okay, thank you very much indeed, Esmail, and good luck to you and your teams. Bye. Thank you.